Well, I have the privilege to continue on in our Summer of Love series with you all today. We are in our 10th sermon today in this series. And so as we kick off this message, I I hope that uh, this this summer has been an encouragement to you all. And as we've looked through the lens of God's Word and we've seen what genuine Christian love looks like. And so let's go ahead and open our Bibles like we've done every week for the past nine weeks as we look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And today we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7. So let's read this section again together. It says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes and always perseveres. This is the word of God. Would you go with me in prayer now as we open up this message together? Heavenly Father, we have just sung the truths of your word today that your love is an everlasting love for your people, that you demonstrated your love for us by sending us your son, Jesus so that those who would trust in him can have eternal security and hope in him. And so I pray today as we look to your word that you would show us how love always hopes, that we would be encouraged by your steadfast love for us, and that we would be able to demonstrate it to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So use me today, speak through me for your glory, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning as we continue on, as we, uh, to focus our attention on verse 7 in the section of 1 Corinthians 13, um, if you've been following along with us in our study together, you will remember that last week, Pastor Jeremy showed us how love always trusts. As we continue on today in verse 7, we will see next that Christian love always hopes. And But what exactly is this hope that Christians should have? While hope has always been a vital characteristic to humanity, Is it not true that hope seems to be an overwhelming theme throughout the world and our culture in recent years? We hope that this person or that person gets elected into office because surely then all of our modern problems will be resolved. We hope that we get into the college that we've always dreamed of or we get that job that we've always wanted. We hope that our kids will turn out to be okay. We hope that we get that big raise We hope that the Giants will win the World Series. We hope that our retirement doesn't collapse with the economy. We might even hope to one day have some type of hope. And so while we can all agree that we all have hope in something, we have to ask ourselves, is there something more to hope than just wishful thinking? Is it not true that hope that's just based on wishful thinking has an underlying sense of hopelessness? And what is that hopelessness? It's knowing that in all of our wishful thinking, there is the uncertainty that anything we hope for will actually come to fruition. And this rings especially true in our relationships. We can hope for certain things to happen to our friends and families, those that we love. But unless our hope is based on certainty, it is only just wishful thinking. Proverbs warns us of this type of uncertain hope in Proverbs 13, 12. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Wishful thinking over time can start to wear us down emotionally and even physically. 
especially if our hopes that we have in our relationships seem like they will never come to fruition. And what I want to show you this morning is that this is not the type of hope that we have here in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 is speaking of a radical kind of love demonstrated through a confident hope. And this type of hope here is in our text is what I want to call assured hope. Assured hope is not based on wishful thinking. Assured hope is based on certainty, what we know to be true. And now I do want to also note that, that it is very true that hope is an overwhelming theme throughout the Bible. And, and while I wish we had time to focus on several of those encouraging examples, we need to focus on the specific context here in 1 Corinthians 13. This chapter is on love and relationships amongst fellow believers in the church. And what we're going to see together is that one of the ways we display Christ-like love to one another is by always hoping for Christ to be working in the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters. And so what I want to show you this morning is what I'm calling the main idea is this. Christian love always hopes the best in other believers by joyfully anticipating the fruition of God's promises to his people, confidently confirmed by his proven trustworthy character and his faithfulness, which he perfectly demonstrated to us in his glorious gospel. So there's a lot in there, so let's read that one more time together, okay? Christian love always hopes the best in others by joyfully anticipating the fruition of God's promises to his people, confidently confirmed by his proven trustworthy character and his faithfulness, which he perfectly demonstrated to us in his glorious gospel. And so let's first look at how Christian love always hopes the best in others by joyfully anticipating the fruition of God's promises to his people. Now remember, I just said Christian hope is different than just wishful thinking. And so Christ-like love to one another is rooted in our certain anticipation that what God has promised to do in the lives of all believers, he will do. And the Apostle Paul didn't just write about this type of radical Christ-like love for others in chapter 13. He actually lived it. And so I want to demonstrate to you how this is the type of love that the Apostle Paul lavished on the Corinth church by showing you the hope that he had for them. So in order for us to understand the context of chapter 13, we need to take a step back, take a wider look at the overall theme of this letter and see what all has been happening in the previous 12 chapters of this letter. First Corinthians is known as a hortatory letter. And what that means is that this letter is predominantly a letter of exhortation or a letter that is emphatically urging someone to do something. And so Paul is greatly concerned about the spiritual condition of the Corinth church. And he wants to exhort and encourage them in order that they might see that they are not living up to the life-altering calling to follow Christ, which they have confessed to. And so right away, starting in chapter 1, Paul already begins addressing major division within the church, which has its root cause in pride and human self-exaltation. Look at what verse 10 says in chapter 1 with me. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. The church had become divided over who they thought was the greatest preacher among them. 
I mean, there seriously were factions formed within the church based on who baptized you and who you thought was the greatest teacher. And so next, what we see is in chapter three, in verse one, Paul is gonna address the spiritual immaturity and their carnal way of life, responding to this division by saying, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In other words, Paul is saying we aren't going to be able to go deeper in our Christian walk until you can get the basics of this faith down. Your disunity and jealousy and strife proves that you do not comprehend the basic fundamentals and truths of the gospel. And we'll get more to that, uh, get more on that later, but let's keep looking at what was going on in the Corinth church. So chapter four, we have Paul continuing to address the issue of human self-exaltation, arrogance, and pride by reminding them of the servant leadership model that Jesus had left with his disciples that they were to be demonstrating towards one another. In chapter five, Paul addresses the church's lack of care to practice church discipline amongst those within their congregation. Look at what he states with me in verse one of chapter five. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So just when he thought things could not have got any worse within this church, now Paul raises the issue of incest amongst one of the members of the congregation. This man is openly having sexual relations with his stepmother, and the church doesn't even bat an eye. Even the pagans blush at such sexual immorality, but this church seems to almost celebrate this type of sexual perversion. And what's even worse is that Paul had already written to them in a previous letter addressing some of these very issues where he states in verse 9 of chapter 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. Now, I know this might seem kind of harsh, and so I wanted to show you something here. Paul's desire to see the church practice discipline amongst its members is actually rooted in his love and hope for them. And this isn't the first time he's addressed issues like this. He reminds them that the goal of removing a brother in unrepentant sin from amongst you is in loving hopes that they might become convicted for their unrepentant sin and see their need to repent and turn to Christ. And so a quick side note here, church discipline, when done correctly and with the right motive, is always rooted in loving hope 
that the person removed will be restored as a believer. That's the motive. That's the goal, to restore the brother. And so, well, I wish we could say that this was the last issue amongst the Corinth church. We aren't even uh, halfway through to chapter 13 yet. And so chapter 6 opens with the issue of lawsuits amongst brothers and sisters in the church. Instead of being able to resolve conflict and sin issues amongst themselves in a biblical manner, like Jesus had commanded the church to do in Matthew 18, 15 through 19, these people were going straight to the public judges and courts and suing one another over grievances and issues. And so on top of all of this, Paul also in chapter 6 addresses even more sexual immorality amongst members within the church, specifically in regards to some of its members using what they expressed as their Christian liberty to go out and hire prostitutes for their own sexual gratification. So the rest of the chapters leading up to 13 deal with even more sin problems within the Corinth church. Issues like idolatry, a wrong view of church leadership, and church organizational structures, an abuse of the Lord's Supper, the exaltation of certain spiritual gifts over others, which resulted in disorder and chaos within the worship service. And so to recap the first 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians, what we see is that the church of Corinth was full of pride, division, arrogance, spiritual immaturity, all types of sexual immorality, lawsuits, idolatry, disorderly conduct within the church, self-exaltation, church leadership and structural problems, and the list goes on. Now, let me ask you this genuine question. Who in their right mind would ever want to step foot in that church? Have you ever seen or heard of a church so dysfunctional and carnal? And hopefully no one said, that sounds just like Fair Oaks. <laughs> but just so we're all on the same page, no, these issues should not be commonly found amongst the true church of Christ Jesus. There is a higher calling. There's a higher standard placed on all who say yes to surrendering their own wills and lives and submitting to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And that should be demonstrated by our unity and desire to grow in personal holiness as a congregation. It is true, however, that every single church can find some of these types of dysfunctional characteristics and notes of carnality creeping uh, inside of its walls. But that is why this letter should be encouraging to us. Because if Paul found hope for Corinth, then surely there is hope for a church like Fair Oaks that's filled with broken people and sinners like me and like you who struggle with some of these same sin issues. Isn't it incredible that Paul had any hope for this church at all? Because seriously, what hope would you have for seeing the church at Corinth turn around? Does it not seem too far gone, gone too carnal to change now? And I'll be honest with you, I personally would not have had much hope for such a messed up congregation. And I think that is directly related to the fact that I personally lack some of this Christ-like selfless love that always hopes the best in other believers. But here we find an incredible example of love 
demonstrated through hope in the apostle Paul. And we see that hope revealed at the beginning of his letter to the Corinth church. So remember what I stated earlier, Christian love always hopes the best in others by joyfully anticipating the fruition of God's promises to his people. And so let's jump all the way back to chapter one again, and let's see how Paul demonstrates this love through hope to the church, starting in verse two. He says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Can you see Paul's love demonstrated through hope and the way that he addresses the church at Corinth here? He gives thanks for the grace of God that was given to them in Christ Jesus. The testimony about Christ is confirmed among them, meaning that they've believed the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And listen to what one commentary stated here. Thanksgiving for a church so rife with problems may seem a bit strange. If Paul's only resources had been his own, the prospects of reforming a group like the Corinthians would have been dim indeed. But God was at work and that for Paul was a matter of thanksgiving. Do you see it, church? Can you see Paul's hope here? And who is the letter addressed to? It's to the church of God, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, may I just remind you of the many issues that we just looked at together. Would you typically define those sorts of people as saints? No. But that is exactly what the Apostle Paul does. He states, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. And so what does he mean by all of this? Let's first break down, what does it mean to be sanctified? To be sanctified means that for those who have truly put their faith in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior, at the moment of true, genuine, repentant faith and belief in the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for sinners and his resurrection from the dead, then not only are your sins fully forgiven in that moment, not only are you declared once and for all fully justified in Christ, but God also at the very moment that you have believed immediately positionally sanctifies you. And to be positionally sanctified means that you are once and for all declared holy or set apart as God's possession. This is what it means to be a saint. And so what does that mean for the life of the believer? Well, listen to how John MacArthur states it in his book, Biblical Doctrine. He says this, the most significant reality in definitive or positional sanctification is that through union with Christ, 
The believer is set free from the dominion of sin. Initial sanctification grants him freedom from sin's power. Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, is this how you would say the Corinth church is currently living? Are they setting the example of those who have truly been set free from the bondage of sin? Are they living as sanctified saints, as holy ones, set apart for God's purposes in glory? And the answer to that question is no. But Paul does not lose heart. He reminds them of their true condition and spiritual position in Christ. All true believers have been set apart, free from the bondage and dominion of sin, meaning that we can now strive towards personal holiness. It is now possible. We can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, overcome temptation and sin that once seemed impossible for us to overcome. Isn't that exactly what Paul communicated in Romans 6, verses 6 through 7, where he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And so now we can start to see Paul's love demonstrated in his hope towards the Corinth church. He hoped in the promise that because God has sanctified them, they will not remain the way that they currently are. There is an assured hope that Christ will continue to work holiness in the lives of the believers in that church and that they will start to reflect their positional holiness and their actions and attitudes towards one another and in their obedience to Christ and his word. Paul knew God's promises and he believed them. Paul believed the promise of the new covenant which is found in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, which states this. This is a promise that God has made. I will give them, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Paul was so confident in the new covenant promises of God to the believer that he demonstrated that confidence in an exhortation of loving hope, knowing that the church of Corinth would not remain in their carnal lifestyle, but would be transformed because the Spirit of God was working in them and because they had been given new hearts. Hearts that would now desire to glorify God in all that they do and to obey his word. So it is clear that Paul knew and believed God's promises. He confidently clung to what God had said he would do in all the hearts of Christ followers. And now what I want us to see next is that Paul's loving hope that God would fulfill his promises to sanctify all believers was built upon God's proven character and faithfulness. And so now let's look at the second half of our main idea this morning. It says, Christian love always hopes the best in others because of our confidence in God's proven character and faithfulness, which he perfectly demonstrated to us in his glorious gospel. So Paul's confidence 
in God's faithfulness directly changed the way he loved others, and it great, greatly increased his hope for them. So turn with me now, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we're going past chapter 13 now, and here is what Paul states. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so first I want to look at the back half of this section starting in verse 3 so we can see how Paul had come to fully know and trust in God's faithfulness and in his word. Paul, the one who previously persecuted the church of Jesus Christ, had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus. It was there where the grace of God met him and opened his eyes to believe in the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was truly the promised Messiah. As a former Pharisee and expert of the law, of God's word, Paul had come to know well that all of the scriptures were anticipating and pointing to Christ, the Messiah, the promised one who would save God's people from their punishment and guilt of sin. He knew well the promises God had made through the prophets of old to send a coming savior, the suffering servant who would die in the place of sinners to save them from God's wrath to come. And he experienced the fulfillment of this promise firsthand. Paul radically experienced God's faithfulness to his word. This is what Paul means by Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, Isaiah prophesied this good news in Isaiah 53, 9 through 11, where he said, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, God's faithfulness to his word is in this prophecy written 700 years before it would be fulfilled in Christ. The suffering servant and Messiah in Isaiah 53 had to die. That's why verse 9 tells us they made his grave with the wicked. You see here, church, he had a grave, a.k.a. it meant he died and he was buried, right? And why did he have to die? Because verse 10 tells us it was God's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. His perfect life was offered up as a, in sacrificial death to make an offering for guilt. His perfect life was offered up to make an offering for guilt. And this is what Paul means by Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. But he did not remain dead. Because the prophecy continues in verse 10. It says, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The suffering servant who died in the place of sinners did not remain dead, but he will see his offspring. His days will be prolonged. And so here we see God's faithfulness to his word and the glorious gospel of Christ. That in accordance with the scriptures, Christ Jesus died in the place of undeserving sinners and his death was the full satisfaction for the guilt of sin. Confirmed by the fact that God raised him from the dead three days later. So that all who place their faith fully in him will be saved from the punishment of sins and inherit eternal life with him. The confidence from seeing God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises in the gospel is what drove Paul's loving hope for the Corinth church. And so now let's jump back to the beginning of chapter 15 again, and I'll show you how Paul demonstrates his trust in God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises to his people, where he states, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Don't miss Paul's loving hope here. First, what does Paul call them in verse 1? He says, I would remind you what? Brothers, exactly. Why does he call them brothers? Because they had to confess, they had confessed to having believed and received the gospel that he had preached to them. And because they had believed and received it, what was the outcome? They were now effectually and conditionally in right standing before God. This is why he says, in which you stand. They were declared justified, meaning their belief in the gospel, the good news that Christ Jesus died a substitutionary death in the place of sinners on the cross, and that because they had placed their faith in him alone, and they had received, that they had received then full forgiveness of their sins, they were now in right standing with God. And that right standing means they were immediately and positionally declared sanctified. This standing is the means, though, to the end which is their growth and personal holiness, to be conformed to the image of Christ, which is what Paul is referring to when he states, by which you are being saved. So verse two ends with, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And so what is Paul trying to get at here? I think he's encouraging the church that they cannot remain the same if in fact, they have truly believed and received the gospel. Remember the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 that we looked at earlier. God is going to be the one who causes those who have truly believed to obey and to keep his commandments. So Paul believes in God's promise because he has seen God's faithfulness to keep his word. He encourages the Corinth church that they can and must change in light of the truths of the gospel because God is the one who is working in them and he is faithful to always do what he said he will do. And that's our hope for us today, church, that God has promised to be working in us, in me and in you, that for all of us who have believed, you, you cannot and will not remain the same. God has given you a new heart. And so I, I don't wanna to get to the closing of the sermon because I'll touch on that a little bit later, but I just want to encourage you with that, that uh, have you seen the evidence of God working in your life? 
Are you a new person once you have believed and put your faith in Christ? Have you experienced the new life that he's promised to give to us? Uh, that's, that's our encouragement today, that it is for all believers. He is working in us. And so can we see here how Paul's confidence in God's faithfulness causes him to have assured hope in the promises of God to work in the lives of all believers? Paul's love for the Corinth church drives his deep desire to see their personal holiness come to fruition as he encourages them with these gospel truths. Despite all of the massive issues in the Corinth church, Paul does not lose heart. His letter of exhortation is meant to help encourage and push the church in the direction that God is currently already starting to take them. He knows that the church will not remain in its immature and carnal state. And he longs to see the day where they will mature and reflect more the nature and character of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom they have put their faith in. So what does all of this have to do with us here today? How can we apply the same type of loving hope in our current relationships here at Fair Oaks Church? If I'm being honest, this message has been convicting and challenging for me personally. Because I recognize that there are several moments in my life in which I've been quick to judge, quick to give up hope that God will continue to work in the lives of brothers and sisters that I've known who seem to not be living in light of what they say they believe. And so here's what I want to encourage us all with, myself included. It is possible, by God's grace, for us to grow in our loving hope towards one another. And so let me give you three practical ways that we can do this together. So first, if I'm to demonstrate Christian love by hoping to see the promises of God fulfilled in my brothers and sisters, then I need to know what the promises are. And ignorance to the promises of God causes us to lose hope in the relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ, which in turn really means we lack love. But when I know God's promises well, specifically here that he's working in the lives of all believers to grow and to mature them, And I would join along with God's mission to help encourage my brothers and sisters to grow and mature in personal holiness and in their faith. Knowing God's promises to to work in us gives us the courage to exhort one another to obey Christ, like Paul did in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you see the second half of the verse there. If it stopped there, that would be bad news. (laughs) Because uh, I, don't, I don't trust myself very much. But here's the hope we have, right? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So because God is the one who's initiated the work, he's the one that's promised to work in us, then we ourselves are encouraged to pursue holiness and encourage that in the other believers around us, knowing that God's already doing that in us. He's promised to do that. So if he's promised to work the change in us, We need to respond in hopeful obedience to his word, and we lovingly hope to see this obedience lived out in the lives of our brothers and sisters among us. Second, if I'm to demonstrate Christian love by hoping to see the promises of God fulfilled in my brothers and sisters, then I need to have confidence in God's faithfulness. Do you know God well enough to be able to trace his faithfulness in your own lives? A confidence in God's faithfulness causes our faith and hope to increase because we know then that he will fulfill his promises, specifically here in this context to the church. 
He demonstrated his faithfulness perfectly in the gospel, where he fulfilled his promise to send a redeemer, his son, Jesus Christ. Have you personally experienced God's faithfulness by seeing and believing in his glorious gospel? If he was faithful to send us his son like he promised that he would, then we can have confidence that he will continue to be faithful to fulfill his promises to us today. This is the hope that is found in Romans 8.32, where it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I wish I had time to look at this passage with you, but we don't. What I want to encourage you with is this, that the give us all things here in this context is in the hopes of our personal sanctification, that God is faithfully going to equip us with all that we need to mature in our personal walk with him. The more confident I am of God's faithfulness, the more my loving hope will increase for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Third and last uh, point here, if I'm to demonstrate Christian love by hoping the best in others, then I will be diligent to pray for the growth of personal holiness in the lives of my brothers and sisters. We all, myself included here, need to grow in this area. And how often am I praying for other believers to grow and mature in holiness? How often am I praying with a loving hope that God will give victory over sin that seems to hopelessly entangle my brothers and sisters in Christ? How often do I pray for the saints at Fair Oaks to grow in their love for Christ in his word? Look at how Paul modeled this type of prayer. uh, In Colossians 1, uh, he says this, From the day we heard, from the moment he heard about their faith, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Can you see just how much loving hope Paul had in his prayer towards this church? His prayer is entrenched in a deep desire filled with loving hope and confidence that this church would mature in its faith. And may we be able to pray those same things for one another here at Fair Oaks, as we lovingly hope and anticipate to see God continue to work in the lives of every believer here. Love hopes all things, and we hope with a joyful anticipation for the fullness of God's grace to be poured out in the lives of every believer here today. So would you please pray that with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this encouragement that we have here today. Where we have your word fully and complete, we can trace your faithfulness in your working from generation to generation as you always fulfilled every promise that you ever made. And so we thank you for the hope that we have in the fulfillment of the promise that you made 700 years before Christ would come. 
You promised to send a Messiah, a Savior who would save your people from their sins. And Lord, we are so uh, in a season of grace where we get to look back and see this fulfillment happen. There were saints in the Old Testament who longed for the day where they would see Christ come. And we get to look back and see your faithfulness that you did indeed send your son to save your people from their sins. And so we ask you even now in this moment as we we go to close our service together that you would open the eyes of those who have no hope in this room this morning, that they would see that you are a God who is faithful, who always keeps his promises, that you are a God of steadfast love and mercy, and you demonstrated that through the gospel as you sent us your son to save us from the wrath that we deserved. You gave us an opportunity to be reconciled to you. Lord, this is a grace that we did not deserve, but we thank you for it. And so may you stir in the hearts of of us all here today to be more uh, in gratitude for that grace that you've shown us. And for those who uh, have not believed it, would you open their eyes today to see that there is a God who is lovingly uh, opening his arms of invitation towards them that all who would turn and believe will be saved. Again, a promise of assurance that you've given to us. And so may we find comfort and hope in that. And Lord, we do also pray for this church here, for, for every, every member on staff. We are all equal in the body of Christ. We are all in need today to have our hearts stirred to want to love one another more. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why you created the church for, for us to build one another up as we look to, to follow Christ. And so would you do that today? Would you build us up in love towards one another? May we hope these promises to be fulfilled here starting today in Fair Oaks Church. May you do that in my heart. May I be more more aware of the needs of the the people here in my own life and in in the lives of my brothers and sisters. And may we hope and and comfort one another. Lord, we uh, love you. We are thankful uh, for, for what you've shown us just through your word, through your faithfulness. May we be encouraged to worship you in gratitude. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.